Thank you, Kostya. Um, so we'll ask Brother Steve to come forward and uh, give his second class an Ecclesia is born. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Did you catch that in the reading? That the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul because he was afraid. He was afraid. Yesterday in our class, we spent some time speaking about the history of Corinth and, and what that city was like. That it was a large city. Some have suggested that it was as many as 750,000 people when Paul arrived there. It was a city that was filled with all kinds of evil and promiscuity. In yesterday's class, we talked about how the city seemed to worship these three counterfeit gods. They worshiped the gods of money and sport and promiscuity in the, in the name of religion. And Paul came to this city not knowing anyone. And he came, he says, with fear and trembling. So much so that the Lord Jesus Christ had to appear to him one night in a vision to provide him comfort. I hope today that we'll be able to speak about that comfort. What we'll focus on first, though, is how it was that Paul came, to, came from Athens to Corinth and how he focused his time and attention on preaching the gospel. There are really three things that I'd like to try to accomplish. We'll briefly talk about the amount of time that Paul spent in this city. We'll talk about how he prioritized his work and his preaching, exactly what he did while he was here. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the friendships, the relationships that Paul developed with the brothers and sisters, those whom he taught and who were responsive to the gospel message, those who entered the waters of baptism and became brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll see that the relationship that Paul had with these men and women was lasting. It was a deep and loving relationship. So that's our objective today. This map, of course, is one that you've seen since you were children in the Sunday school. It's a map of Paul's second missionary journey. And on the right-hand side, we, sort of, we, we work our way from uh, Syria uh, up to... Lystra and Derby to uh, Mycia, Troas area, Philippi, Neapolis. And what we're going to be focusing on is this period here where Paul has come from Athens and has gone to Corinth. And at the conclusion of his stay in Corinth, he'll leave Ephesus. He'll leave for Ephesus. And so this is a very basic map. It's one that we've seen for a long time, but it paints the picture of where Paul was and where he had been, and where he was going. Paul, as we know, came to Corinth during his second missionary journey after preaching in Athens. He lived and he worked in Corinth for a period of only about a year and a half. But despite that short, relatively short period of time, we're going to see that Paul's relationship, his contact with the brothers and sisters in Corinth, lasted for 
five or six or possibly seven years, if not more. And it gives us an indication as to the depth of his love and his friendship and the responsibility he felt to that ecclesia. This brief chart shows us the five or six year period that we spoke about, where he first started in Acts 18, staying for 18 months. Three or four years later, he wrote what we know as 1 Corinthians, and it was probably in AD 55 or 56 that he wrote 2 Corinthians. And I think that it's worth noting that during this entire period, there were problems in the Corinthian ecclesia. And it shows us and demonstrates for us the amount of patience that the apostle had in working with the brothers and sisters there who were struggling with both doctrine and moral issues. That Paul continued to work with these brothers and sisters over an extended period of time. And so I show that there to give us an indication as to the amount of time that he did spend with the brothers and sisters there. But if you will, to, if you please turn with me to Acts chapter 18, we'll begin to see what it was Paul did when he first arrived. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Notice this, it says, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. The first thing that I note is that it tells us that Paul stayed with them, not necessarily because they were brother and sister, but because they were tent makers. And we don't know when it was that Priscilla and Aquila received the gospel message. And I'm suggesting, and in my mind, I see that they received this message here in Corinth. There's nothing that tells us that they had been baptized prior to that. But the main reason Paul went to see Priscilla and Aquila is because they were tent makers. They shared a common trade. Now on the slide here, you'll see in this lower section, this lower photograph, the pictures of an archaeological dig that took place many years ago. And if you look carefully, you'll see a rounded concave section. And the archaeologists tell us that this shadowy area is the theater where the Ismithian Games were held. You'll remember that the Ismithian Games were a little bit different than the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games were purely an athletic competition. The Smithian Games, however, included the athletics, but it included drama and theater and all sorts of singing competitions. And so here, archaeologists have discovered a theater. Archaeologists have also discovered the stadium where the races were held. Yesterday we spoke about Paul using the sports metaphor and how all athletes go into strict training to run a race. We spoke about how that word race relates to a specific length, a specific distance. And sure enough, archaeologists have discovered that the length of the stadium 
corresponds with the length of that race that they were to have run. Fascinating. And as archaeologists have gone through, they've discovered more and more about not only Corinth, but about the Asmithian Games, but there's one thing that they never found. They never found an Olympic village. They never found the place where the athletes would stay. They never found the lodging areas. And so what it tells me, and what I suggest to you, is that when all of these hundreds and thousands of people would flock from around the Mediterranean world to go to Corinth every two years to participate or to witness or spectate these great games, they went carrying their tents. And for that reason, I would suggest that it was the Apostle Paul chose tent making as his trade because he realized that it gave him a great opportunity to preach the gospel. Think about the types of work that one could do in those days. Tent making was unique in that it would allow an individual to work and speak at the same time. So we looked at the Agora, the remains of the Agora in yesterday's class, and it was here that the, that the goods were brought from all around the world and sold to the travelers that would come to that great city. And not only would these travelers come to buy the pottery and the olive oil and the things that were sold there, I would presume that Priscilla and Aquila and possibly Paul might have had a tent-making shop there. And that as the crowds would flock in, it would give Paul, the, the apostle, the ability to teach and to preach the good news. And what a great location because the people that came to Corinth were in very many ways a transient people. They didn't come and stay alone, but they came. And like that great diaspora, they, they went away. And they were able to take that good news and bring it to their homes and to their families and to their neighbors in other parts of the world. And so perhaps that's another reason why the Apostle Paul would join Priscilla and Aquila in the tent-making trade. And so we can ask ourselves, what lessons is there for us in preaching the gospel? Here is the great preacher who goes out and teaches so many. And the first thing that he does is he determines where will I be most effective. And one place he goes is the Agora, where there are so many people. Well, when we continue on in Acts chapter 18, we discover that it wasn't only there. Paul initially was a part-time missionary. He worked as a tent maker until Silas arrived. And if we look now again at Acts chapter 18, verse 5. Oh, let's skip back to verse 4. It says, Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Here's the second way that Paul decided to preach the gospel. He would approach the synagogue. Now imagine Paul, this great student, the one who had Gamaliel as a, as a tutor, you know, who tutored him. Paul, now in Corinth, far from, Rome, far, far from Jerusalem, could go. And I would imagine that the individual members of that Jewish synagogue 
would be very excited to have a man of the caliber and the, the background of the Apostle Paul speak to them. And so it was quite natural that they would invite him into the synagogue to speak. And so he spoke to them every Sabbath. What you see on the slide here is a stone that was discovered in the late 1800s. This stone was probably about three or four feet long. And the archaeologists discovered some writing on the stone. And that writing has been translated, and they believe that it says, the synagogue of the Hebrews. And so it's believed that what we have here on this picture is the lintel post that was above the doorway. And it's likely that it was under that lintel post that the Apostle Paul would have traveled every Sabbath. He would have walked underneath that each week to preach the gospel. And I love these discoveries of archaeological finds because it, again, confirms that the things that we read in the Scripture aren't merely stories, but these are actual things that were lived out in the lives of real men and women. And so in my mind's eye, I can see the Apostle Paul walking underneath that doorway, being invited to speak to the congregation. And so the Apostle Paul began to preach and to teach. And so what was it that he taught? Well, Saul, uh, Silas and Timothy came, and it was at that point that Paul was able to devote himself exclusively to preaching. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. That Jesus was the Messiah. Certainly the Jews in the synagogue would have believed in the Messiah. They had longed to see the Messiah. And yet in Corinthians, Paul says that he came preaching Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't understand how the Messiah would come, not as a king. They couldn't comprehend that. And consequently, we're told here in Acts chapter 18 that the Jews became abusive, verse 6. When the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, the King James uses the word blaspheme. Paul shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Verse 7, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. But look what it says in verse 8. In verse 8, we discover that among the very first of those to have accepted the gospel was none other than the synagogue ruler himself. When Paul shook out the clothes of his, shook out the, the, his garments, when he said, your, your blood be on your own heads, I can't imagine but to think that the synagogue ruler recognized the, the biblical echoes that went back to the Old Testament and that his heart was pricked that he realized and discovered and understood that Jesus was, in fact, the long-promised Messiah. 
And so in verse 8, we read that Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. And so, brothers and sisters, here we are as a congregation, as a body of Christ. And we look back historically and we can see that one by one, individuals like Crispus responded to the gospel. He and his whole household. And soon, the Christadelphian Ecclesia in Corinth was born. Men and women baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptized into the body of Christ. And we share with them through the years of of time, we continue to share fellowship. These things were preached and taught by the Apostle Paul. But we started out our class this morning with me asking the question, did you hear? Did you notice that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul in a vision? How many times have we been lying in bed at night, concerned with the tension in our ecclesia, concerned with family problems, concerned about the cares of the world, unable to sleep. These things happen to the Apostle Paul too. These things happen to us because we have such a passion and such a love for the Gospel. And the Apostle Paul was struggling. He was abused wherever he went, from city to city to city. They abused him in the synagogue. And one night, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision to provide him comfort. And brothers and sisters, I can only only suggest that we can take such comfort ourselves from that. Because our Lord Jesus Christ is alive today, still, actively working in our lives the same way he was actively working in the life of Paul. When we think about Christ in heaven, we ask the question, what is he doing? What is our Lord doing while he is alive in heaven? Is he merely waiting for that day when the trumpet call will go out? Or is he working? in interceding in our lives, helping us. Turn with me to John chapter 17. It's here in John where we read of his wonderful prayer before Christ's crucifixion, where Jesus is praying to his Father. And of course, we're so well familiar with this lovely prayer where he prays for the brothers and sisters. But I want to draw your attention to the ninth verse where Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And so one way that the Lord Jesus Christ helped his disciples while he was alive and walking on the earth was to pray for them. And I'd suggest to you that our Lord still prays for us today when we are struggling and in need. 
that Jesus is alive in heaven. And when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes with groaning on our behalf. We can draw such strength and comfort from that, knowing that Paul, who was struggling, so much so that the Lord had to appear in a vision, that Paul was comforted by Jesus, we too can draw such strength and comfort by the love and the intercession that Jesus continues to exhibit and demonstrate for us. Turn to John chapter 14. John 14, verse 14, Jesus says, You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And so we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus and for his sake. And we can draw comfort knowing that Jesus hears us. And he says here that he will do it. John chapter 3. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Think on those words. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Now let's go back to Acts 18 and read about this vision that Paul received from the Lord. We're in Acts 18, verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in the city. Now, brothers and sisters, we just began by talking about the formation of the Christadelphian ecclesia in Corinth, that this was an ecclesia in its formative stages. And yet the Lord says to Paul that he has many people in the city. And so my question is, who were those people? And perhaps the answer might be that some of those people were none other than the ministering spirits, the angels to which our Lord has command. And can we not draw strength from that thought? That when we are hurting, when we are struggling with our health, or with problems in our meeting, or with problems in our family, or with the cares of the world, that the Lord might send angels to help us, and to strengthen us, and to comfort us. Sometimes, perhaps, that is the case. And so Paul received great comfort from this. And he was able to, having experienced this vision, to go out with renewed enthusiasm. And he was able to continue to preach despite the abuse that the, that the Jews levied against him. So think now of the, uh, of the Roman, not the Roman, the Jewish synagogue there in Corinth. They've just seen their ruler, Crispus, and his entire family defect. They've just seen that this man has been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they replaced the synagogue ruler with one by the name of Sosthenes. And together, 
they lodge a united attack against Paul. And I'm going to suggest to you that this attack was one of the greatest threats to the spread of Christianity in history. That this could have been a tipping point that would have, ex- would have had extreme consequences to the spread of the gospel. You see, the Jews went to the Roman council, the, the Roman proconsul, and they wanted to have Paul stripped of his ability to preach Christ and him crucified. And had the Romans accepted the case, and had Paul been thrown in prison, and had Christianity been outlawed, we can only imagine the devastating effects that might have had. And yet the Lord said, do not be afraid. And so in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, we read, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. Jesus' promise was upheld. Paul was able to withstand this united attack against him because of the comfort and the strength he received from our Lord. And so when the proconsul heard this complaint, he threw it out of court. Now you'll notice that at the beginning of chapter 18 here, we learned that Priscilla and Aquila had left Rome for Corinth because Claudius Caesar, in verse 3, verse 2, had ordered the Jews to leave Rome. It so happened that the Jews had fallen out of favor with the Romans. And perhaps it's because of this that the Roman proconsul over Achaia, the one whom the united attack was, was lodged, to whom they brought this court case, he threw it out. Partly because the Jews had fallen out of favor, but significantly because our Lord Jesus had appeared to Paul in a dream, in a vision, and said that he would protect him. So what was the result of this? Imagine yourselves now as a member of this congregation of Jews who were located in Corinth. They've just seen their first synagogue ruler defect with his family. They've just elected this man Sosthenes to be their new synagogue ruler. Sosthenes gathers everyone together. They make this united attack against Paul, and the proconsul throws it out. And so, the Jews were told, beat Sosthenes. Can you imagine? They turned on this man. They turned on him. In verse 17, they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him 
in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So in your mind's eye, brothers and sisters, picture yourselves there in Corinth that day. And picture this man, Sosthenes, having been beaten by his entire congregation, having been ignored by the Romans. Imagine him sitting there on the the so-called steps of the courthouse, bleeding from a cut in his lip, with a welt on his face, having been embarrassed and shamed by those who are members of his congregation. There he is, alone. Or not. He wasn't alone. Because the Apostle Paul demonstrated the love for his enemies the way, the, the way that our Lord Jesus Christ instructed. The Apostle Paul was the one, I would suggest, that came to Sosthenes to soothe him, to comfort him, to care for the cuts and the bruises. Does it say anything in Acts chapter 18 about that having been the case? Well, the answer is no. There's nothing in here that speaks of Paul having turned to Sosthenes and providing him comfort. So why do we suggest that? Well, turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it's here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where we discover who it was that wrote the letter to the congregation in Corinth. The first verse says this, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. And so the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians was really co-written, not only by the Apostle Paul, but by the man who had been left bleeding in the courthouse steps, the one who was recovered by the Apostle, the one who was comforted by the Apostle, the one whom the Apostle taught the Gospel message. And isn't there a wonderful exhortation for us, brothers and sisters? Because there are times in our lives when we feel as though there are people making attacks on us. And we need to love those people because their eternal salvation is at stake. The Apostle Paul knew that. And the Apostle Paul demonstrated that. And one day, Sosthenes was baptized into Christ and became a member of that one body. When we consider the Corinthian Ecclesia, we see a tremendous amount of diversity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, has an interesting comment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
that verse clearly indicates that while not many were those things, some in fact were. And so the Corinthian ecclesia included a diverse number, diversity of members, including those of noble birth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we read of slaves being members of the congregation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we discover that the ecclesia was made up of some who were wealthy. And when we looked and saw how Corinth was the center of finance in the Mediterranean world, it only makes sense that that's the case. But in addition to the wealthy, some were poor. Look at the contrast. Nobility and slaves. Wealthy and poor. Jews and Gentiles. Corinth was a melting pot. And all of these diverse members came together as one to form the ecclesia. On the left-hand side, we see a list of some of the names of individuals who have been identified as brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, in Acts chapter 18, which we just have considered, we see Priscilla and Aquila, Titius Justus, Crispus, Sosthenes, and Apollos, that great orator. These were members of the ecclesia there. And in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 16, we read about Chloe and Stephanus and Fortunatus. And when we look at the, at, at the words or the names of these individuals, we can identify that they included both Greeks and Jews. But come with me now to Romans chapter 16. It's here in Romans that we read of Paul sending greetings at the conclusion of his letter. Romans, of course, was written while Paul was living in Corinth. I imagine him sitting in his tent as he's writing this letter. And we get a feel for the love and the friendship that Paul had with the brothers and sisters there by the way he expresses his greetings to them. So in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I commend, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. And what we see next is a list of these individuals being greeted by the Apostle. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, his tent-making friends. They had left Corinth. They're now in Rome. And he's saying, greet them. And can't we, brothers and sisters, relate to that? How many times does a speaker stand in the front of your congregation on a Sunday morning, having traveled a great distance to be there? And he begins by saying, I bring with me the greetings of your brothers and sisters from Boston. And this is what Paul's doing. Now, notice, there, there, so, you know, I just, Sister Sandy was telling me that she was leading a sister's class one day, and the sisters went around the room, and they replaced the names here. So, 
rather than reading greet Priscilla and Aquila, they might say, greet David, greet Jim, greet Katie. And it made a connection there. And so we do see that love and that friendship that the Apostle Paul had. Just as an aside, I'd like to draw your attention to the 17th verse here in Romans. And one of the things that we spoke about was the period of time that Paul uh, had correspondence with the ecclesia there in Corinth. Recall that he was probably arriving in Corinth around 50 AD, and he had contact with them through 56 AD by writing letters and by encouraging the ecclesia to deal with the moral and the doctrinal problems that they had. And just as an aside, I, I point out here that Paul really seemed to draw a distinction between those who taught poorly and those who had been poorly taught. So in the 17th verse, he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Or as the King James says, simple people or simple minds. And so can't you see the distinction there between those who are naive and those who are leading the factions? And Paul, through a period of six or seven years, had great patience with those who were, as he says here, naive. Now look at the 23rd verse. It says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greeting." Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Erastus. Take a look at this. In one of those archaeology, uh, archaeological digs, they discovered a cobblestone road. But there was one stone that was different from all the others. It was much longer and wider. And as they uncovered this stone, they learned or discovered that there was writing on it. And if you look there, you can make out the E and the R and the A, S, T, U, S, Erastus. The brother who Paul was identifying here in Romans chapter 16, Erastus, who's the city's director of public works, is the one who is referred to in this paving stone. These words that were transcribed here are translated as Erastus, the commissioner of public works, bore the expense of this pavement. And so once again, we're reminded that the individuals who we read about in Acts and in Corinthians, and in Romans, and in all of the words of the Scripture, were living, breathing individuals. And one day soon, the trumpet call will go out, and the Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven, and He will establish a kingdom, and He will raise the dead. And it is our prayer, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that on that great day, we'll be united not only with Christ, 
but with brethren like the Apostle Paul and his friends, like Sosthenes and like Erastus. And so we pray for that day.